What is happening? This is Wendell Wallace of Wendell's World in Sports for the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast going. Subscribe, download, follow, rate, and review the sports talk podcast that engages the brain and tantalizes your soul. The daily happenings of what's going on in the NFL, NBA, college football, and basketball. My Georgetown Hoyas with America's coach Patrick Ewing and giving you some side chatter about what's happening and how the world is turning in AEW and WWE. Wendell's World in Sports. Download, subscribe, follow, rate, and review anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast. Sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. Mahomes looking to flip, takes it in for the touchdown. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down and an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lynn Baez, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Man, let me go ahead with some special dedication for those who are listening to the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that we can listen to, that you can listen to, that I can listen to, that anybody can listen to. Special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in this country. Special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in Canada, Vancouver, Montreal, um, uh, Toronto. Thank you so much. Special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast on the continent of South America, Brazil, and others. Thank you so much. Special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in France. Thank you so much. Go France in terms of the World Cup is concerned. Special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in Germany special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in Australia depending upon how this country is going your future resident of either Melbourne or Perth or Sydney special dedication for those who are listening to the podcast out there special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in Pakistan special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast all over the globe thank you so doggone much anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast iTunes iHeart, Spotify, Amazon. Do me a favor, W-E-N-D-E-L-L apostrophe S, World in Sports, Wendell's World in Sports. Download, follow, subscribe, rate, review, most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. And if you want to hear me speak about what's happening in the NBA and my Georgetown Hoyas, I apologize, my fault, I haven't been on the uh, YouTube episodes speaking about the NBA of my Hoyas in a little bit. Have a new job I got to adjust to. I got sick uh, a couple of weekends ago, Thanksgiving holiday season. So they're not excuses. They're just reasons. Call them what you want. The reason why I haven't been doing my podcast as uh, far as my YouTube episodes are concerned. We'll get back to that. I am going to get back to that very soon. But if you want to see me do my thing and if you like 
what you are looking at, speaking about the single ladies between the ages of 42, 49, and looking fine, if you like what you're seeing when I do my podcast on my YouTube episodes, do me a favor, subscribe to my video, like, comment, all those good things, I would appreciate it. All right, let me go ahead and um, get into some discussion. I'm recording this on a Tuesday night after watching... The election where Senator Raphael Warnock has won the Georgia runoff. Uh, 1.73 million people in in Georgia voted for Herschel Walker, which means 1.73 million people are the dumbest motherfuckers walking this earth. Because if if you were stupid enough to vote for Herschel Walker, I am just depressed that I have to share the same air with you. You are some dumb motherfuckers, but this is the same people who voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene also from that state. So congratulations, Georgia. Anybody out there who are not from this country, if you want to find out who the dumbest people on this planet are, go to the state of Georgia and go to the rural areas of Georgia. Go find the people who voted for Herschel Walker or Marjorie Taylor Greene. That, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, races, and faces. Those are the stupidest sons of bitches walking this planet. Congratulations, you have found them. But congratulations for Raphael Warnock, uh, six more years, baby. And we got the Jigaboo from uh, Georgia, who's now living in Texas, Herschel Walker. That coon can go back to the attic in the uh, in the master's house and go shine that motherfucker's shoes. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay. Let me go ahead before I start speaking about what is happening in the NFL, before I start speaking about the college football playoffs, even before I start speaking about Deion Sanders taking the Colorado job and leaving Jackson State at HBCUs in the rear view. Before I get into all that, let me go ahead and discuss. I don't know if the expiration date is passed on this, but I'm going to discuss it anyway. It's the whole Jerry Jones situation. Um... I've heard a lot of mess. I've heard a lot of comments. Uh, LeBron brought it to people's attention after a Laker game in a press conference when he was speaking about, hey, man, y'all are speaking and asking me about uh, Kyrie Irving and the stuff that he did. Why isn't anybody coming to me talking about Jerry Jones and that situation? So I want to uh, go ahead and delve and dive into this whole deal in terms of this Jerry Jones situation and this Kyrie Irving situation because it's kind of funny to me how this photo that was taken over 60 years ago can swing the pendulum one way or the other with your thoughts and feelings about Jerry Jones in terms of if he's a racist or not, or is he bigoted or not, or, or or something to the better of, I don't know if this is more clear evidence for those who think Jerry Jones is bigoted or racist. I, I don't know exactly what the whole hub, 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 hubbaloop is. I, I, I kind of get a, a, a level of it, but just, again, speaking about something that happened 60 years ago, so just for those who have been living under a rock or those who have been living in an isolated area or those who have the head in the sand and they're not really familiar about what's happening outside of their neighborhood who might be too entrenched in the latest TikTok uh, videos or the Instagram reels or really don't have a clue or an idea of what's going on outside of their community, outside of their block, outside of their city, outside of their neighborhood. Let me uh, refresh. Let me reteach. Let me go ahead and give you the uh, scoop. New surrounding concerning Jerry Jones from an incident over 60 years ago on September 9th of 1957. AP photos showed 
Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in the background of a group of defiant white students at Arkansas North Little Rock High School blocking the doors of the school, denying access to six African-American black students enrolled in the school when the photo was taken. Jones was 14 years old at the time and a sophomore at North Little Rock High School. In an interview with the Washington Post, Jones minimized his role in the events. What he told the paper was, I don't know that or I or anybody had anticipated or had a background of knowing that was involved. It was more of a curious thing. Now, the look on Jerry Jones' face, if you saw the picture, it was one of inquisitiveness. It wasn't something where he was shouting, he was screaming, or he did, the, the picture didn't show him uh, as, uh, as, a, as someone in a rage or someone who was yelling or screaming or anything like that. It was maybe a situation of inquisitiveness, like what's going on here, this, that, and the other. So in that regard, I take Jones as his word. I don't know. I wasn't back there in 1957. I wasn't with Jerry Jones when he was uh, in that situation. And again, Jerry Jones was 14 fucking years old. So it's kind of like, okay, interesting. But, you know, the photo was, was taken so long ago and it was published by the Washington Post as a uh, series of stories about the NFL's failure to promote black coaches over the course of decades and Jerry Jones has been one of the most egregious offenders of uh, of an of owners who have not hired uh, blacks for uh, coordinating jobs or head coaching jobs in fact he's one of 13 owners or Dallas is one of 13 teams that have never hired a black man as their head coach but I'll get into that with Jerry Jones a little bit later the, the thing that kind of drew the interest to me about this whole thing was how much of that picture seemed to strengthen the argument that Jerry Jones is racist or is prejudiced in some people's uh, thinking. If you thought Jerry Jones was racist or, or, or prejudiced, you're going to use the picture of a 14-year-old kid who's looking at a black kid being walked into uh, a high school in the during the age of legalized segregation in terms of that's your final nail in the coffin for Jerry Jones being racist? If you think Jerry Jones is being racist, if you formulate the opinion that Jerry Jones is being racist, there's a lot more evidence that you can accrue to bring in to build the argument that Jerry Jones is racist. It's not a situation where I have no idea. I don't know if Jerry Jones is racist. There might be some evidence, but I'm not sure I'm on the fence. Oh, what's this? There's a photo from 60 years ago of a 14-year-old Jerry Jones out front of North Little Rock uh, High School in terms of when they were trying to integrate the school and he's out there taking a look at all this? Well, then obviously then he must be racist. I, I, I just don't know how that would swing the pendulum one way or the other. If you think Jerry Jones is racist, Jerry Jones is racist. That picture shouldn't have swayed your opinion or strengthened your argument one way uh, or the other uh, concerning that. I mean, again, when you take a look at the evidence, if you want to build a case of Jerry Jones being racist, is Jerry Jones racist? I don't know. I have no idea. I've never met Jerry Jones. I've never spoken to Jerry Jones. I mean, ask Troy, uh, ask uh, uh, the black players who play for him or ask, ask people who know him, ask people who've done uh, dealings with him. I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and, and, and make a comment that Jerry Jones is racist based on the evidence that I have. Uh, I'm quite sure there's some prejudice, but in my terms of what a racist is compared to what uh, someone who's prejudiced or bigoted, I mean, for me, my definition of that might be different than what your definition is. 
And that doesn't mean either one of us is right or wrong. It's just an opinion. So when I take a look at Jerry Jones, in my book of what a racist is, do I think Jerry Jones is a flat-out racist? No, I don't think so. But do I think that there is some prejudice in Jerry Jones? Tons. <laughs> Absolute tons. Do I think that there needs to be some improvement in Jerry Jones and his thoughts and opinions and dealings with black people? Absolutely. At 80 years old, do I think it's going to happen from a guy who's worth $11 billion? No, I don't. But Jerry Jones, when you think about it, here's an 80-year-old man who's worth over $11 billion. I mean, what is he in touch with? What is he in, I mean, what in terms of group, race, face, gender, I mean, what generation? He's in the world all his own. Man, when you have been as influential and as rich and as powerful as Jerry Jones has been. At 80 years old, he ain't going to turn around. At 80 years old, he ain't going to be woke. Worth $11 billion, he doesn't need to be. He's too rich to be woke. He's too rich to be diverse. He's too rich to be doing any of that stuff, man. I mean, Jerry Jones, he is what he is. As long as he ain't leading no clan members, as long as he ain't funding the clan, as long as he's not funding the Proud Boys, as long as he's not funding groups that commit hatred, and violence toward Jews or Asians or blacks or, or or gays or anything like that. Hey, man, you know, do what you want to do. I mean, if you're going to be a situation, you know, hey, you know, Jerry Jones is the owner of a team, blah, blah, blah. Okay, if Jerry Jones is going to be racist, if Jerry Jones you think is racist and because of that, that's the reason why he hasn't hired a black head coach or uh, black coordinators and such. Well, I mean, guess what? When was the last time the Dallas Cowboys under Jerry Jones won a Super Bowl? Okay, so, I mean, you know, there, there's consequences to his actions. And, and guess what? Yeah, I know there's 29 or 30 other teams outside of the Cowboys, and that's a small number, but there's more opportunities for black head coaches, qualified black coaches who want to be head coaches or coaches in training or in growth in maturity in their job that should be moving up from linebackers coach or secondary coach to defensive coordinator or running back coach or wide receiver coach to be moved to offensive coordinator to follow that path to eventually become head coaches? Yeah, without question, without doubt, without any uh, type of argument whatsoever, unless you're an idiot who voted for Herschel Walker, then yes, it's obviously plain that it's much harder for black folk to take that path to be a head coach in the National Football League uh, than those of their white counterparts. But still, there's a situation where, hey man, Jerry Jones is not the main reason. He's part of the problem, but he's not the main part of the problem why there hasn't been enough blacks in coaching positions or given the opportunity. Qualified black coaches who are looking for a head coaching job in the NFL, why they haven't been giving the same opportunities and same chances as their white counterparts. Jerry Jones is part of the problem. He is not the main problem. Again, Jones has hired eight head coaches in his 33 years of ownership. None of them have been black. So he's hired everyone from Jimmy Johnson and Bill Parcells, can't blame him on that one, to Jason Garrett, Dave Campo, Chan Gailey, and Barry Switzer. Okay, we can blame you on those. How is that going to equate to build the argument that Jerry Jones is a racist? You're going to try to tell me because he hired Jimmy Johnson, a Hall of Famer, because he hired Bill Parcell, he's a Hall of Famer. I don't give a, I don't give a damn who you are. I don't give a damn at the time who was a candidate for a head coaching position. 
when Bill Parcells was available. Of course you're going to be hiring Bill Parcells if you're the owner of an NFL football team. Jimmy Johnson was an outside-the-box hire. And before Jimmy Johnson became the Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson, a strong collegiate head coach leading Miami to multiple national championships, building the dynasty or, uh, or, or help building the dynasty of the Miami Hurricanes at that time. But the jump that was made by Jimmy Johnson to go from college ball to the professional ranks replacing Tom Landry was something that was considered outside the box thinking that was considered risky at the time and Jimmy Johnson proved that uh, you know he was more than capable and worthy to uh, get the job but you know at that time Jimmy Johnson wasn't the Jimmy Johnson that we know now so there could have been some pushback there could have been some building of evidence to say see we don't know about this owner from Arkansas this new guy from Arkansas he got rid of uh, Jerry he got rid of Tom Landry but why didn't he bring in a black head coach that really wasn't the point at that time but you know none of the coaching hires um, have been about these his ability uh, as far as the coach, more would you speak about why Jerry Jones hired these guys? I think it was not more about race. It was more about how much he could control the coaches that he had. I mean, do you really think Jerry Jones would want to work with a Marvin Lewis after his experience in Cincinnati or a coach like a Denny Green when he was still looking for jobs or, or a Tony Dungy? No. But it had nothing to do because Jerry Jones didn't want to work with Marvin Lewis because he was black. He didn't want to probably work with Marvin Lewis because Marvin Lewis probably wouldn't put up with all this bullshit that uh, Jones would have been giving him. Jerry Jones would have been able to control a Marvin Lewis or a Denny Green or a Tony Dungy or someone of that magnitude like he could control a Jason Garrett or a Dave Campo or a Barry Switzer or a Wade Phillips, or a Chan, or a Chan Gailey. So, so for me, when people bring up the argument of, yeah, you know, Dallas, and of course, when you have one coach for 29 years, I mean, you know, hey, it's, uh, with Tom Landry, you know, the chances of becoming uh, coach for the Cowboys is not really that great. But when you take a look at the hires that Jones has made, the only time that he's ever hired somebody where he knew that he would have to give up a certain amount of control, which means giving up a certain amount of the spotlight, was when he hired Bill Parcells. Other than that, he's hired guys who, quote-unquote, he could control. So if you're a black head coach and you're looking for the opportunity, I mean, this is a situation where do you really want to put your hands or your career in the hands of Jerry Jones, who not only is the owner of the team, but also the general manager of the team, who's going to take more of the attention, who's going to take more of the spotlight because that's what he seeks, that's what he searches for, that's what he craves. So you're a black head coach, especially a black head coach, knowing in this profession that you don't get the same amount of opportunities that your white counterparts do for the most part. Are you going to get your, are you going to take your one and only shot and put it in the hands of Jerry Jones? I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that either. Jones has hired just two black coordinators, a position that is considered to be a launching pad to a head coaching job. So look, all of this stuff about hiring, whether you think Jerry Jones is racist or not, or this, that, and the other, hey, look, man, for me, that doesn't write the story. That doesn't persuade my thinking in terms of Jerry Jones being racist if I thought truly 
in my heart that Jerry Jones was a racist. Now, for me, in terms of thinking what Jerry Jones is when it comes to uh, race relations and being woke and being uh, grounded and this, that, and the other, hey, man, there's some prejudice there that he has that's uh, rooted in ignorance, that's rooted in a uh, generation coming before where he reaches a stature, he reaches a point in his life where, hey, look, man, when you're worth billions of dollars, when you have the power, when you have the control, when you have all of those things that Jerry Jones has, man, you don't need to follow conventional wisdom. You don't need to follow the morass and, and, and of everything that's going on in the world today. Hey, man, you're worth $11 billion. I don't need to be worried about what's happening with the black community. But guess what? I'm worth $11 billion. I don't care what's happening in the white community. I don't care what's happening in the Hispanic community. I don't care what's happening in the Asian community. I don't care what is happening in the gay and lesbian community. I don't care what's happening in the Muslim community. I don't care what's happening in the evangelical communities. I don't care because when you're worth $11 billion, and you're 80 years old, and you've been rich for however, and you're the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, come on, man, do you really give a fuck? Do you really care? Are you really going to bow down? Are you really going to acquiesce to what the social norms should be? Of course not. You're worth $11 billion. So, you know, to, to me, it's not a situation where Jerry Jones is walking around the uh, Cowboys office or hanging around with his wife friends and throwing out nigger this and nigger that every other word and talking about I'll never let a nigger do this or I'll never let a nigger coach my team and this, that, and the other. He gave $40 million to Dak Prescott. Come on, man. You know, so it's not a situation like that where I think that um, – uh, Jerry Jones is racist, or I'm not going to talk to that nigger television commentator, or I'm not going to talk to those niggers over there. I don't think Jerry Jones, I don't think Jerry Jones, if someone is going to be painting Jerry Jones as a racist, I don't, I don't think that's the case. He's an old man, 80 years old, who has been rich, who has been out of touch for a longest of time. But he's been out of touch, not just with the black community. He's been out of touch with a lot of communities. Because again, when you're worth that amount of money, hey man, do you really need to be touching anything as long as it's not, as long as it's uh, his money? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. So LeBron comes out speaking about this nonsense. And yeah, I just want to hit Jerry Jones real quick. I was reading something about uh, Jamel Hill. Uh, the uh, she wrote a story in the Atlantic by uh, Jamel Hill, fellas. That's spelled J E M E L E H I L Hill. You might want to uh, Google her name, read some of her stuff, and learn something. But uh, she wrote a story in the Atlantic, and uh, she was stating the argument about well, is Jerry Jones a racist? It was centered around the uh, photo that was taken and had the discussion whether this cements the opinion or moves the. Uh, term opinion to fact when we're speaking about Jerry Jones being a racist but um, she wrote a story and this was like you know the and bringing up some more evidence in terms of hey look man you don't need to have a photo from over 60 years ago to uh, you know bring evidence to Jerry Jones being racist if you really think that I mean the year the Rooney rule started the Cowboys were in search of a head coach Jones spent two days interviewing Bill Parcells who was the clear favorite and then to satisfy the Rooney rule 
That's R-O-O-N-E-Y, Rooney Rule. Fellas, ladies, look it up, please, so you can learn something. To satisfy the Rooney Rule, Jones interviewed Dennis Green, who was black, for about 20 minutes by phone, which was in direct violation of the Rooney Rule. In 2017, Jones said that he would cut any player who chose to emulate Colin Kaepernick, the former NFL quarterback, who the year prior had begun kneeling during the national anthem to protest police brutality against black people. So I don't think Jerry Jones said that I will cut any player who's black who chose to emulate Colin Kaepernick. I'm thinking that he was guessing that because Colin Kaepernick was black, that the only people that would be in his corner to do such a thing were black people. So I think many people took that notion to say that, well, with Colin Kaepernick kneeling and black folks being the victim of police brutality and criminal justice uh, um, inequality, that they would be the only ones kneeling and that the white folks or the white players on the team would be like, hey, you know, we're cool, we're good with that. But then when he saw not only the black players kneeling, but also the white players kneeling with them, he changed his tone a little bit. And of course, we all know his relationship with the Antichrist, the former piece of shit who was the uh, president in name only from 2016 to 2020. So all of this stuff has been building all of this stuff when we're talking about, hey, is Jerry Jones racist as he isn't racist? So LeBron James, the man who Laura Ingram, that piece of garbage said should just shut up and dribble when he is outspoken about um, some of the things that he is discussing outside of the basketball court, outside of the arena, outside of the NBA when he decides to give his opinion on issues that are not related to basketball or the NBA. He made comments uh, in the uh, concerning uh, LeBron James, excuse me, concerning Kyrie Irving and um, Jerry Jones after a game. In fact, this is what LeBron James said to the press when he was curious on why nobody had asked him about the photo concerning Jerry Jones while he was asked questions about the situation with Kyrie Irving. This is what LeBron James said. Uh, I got one question for you guys before you guys leave. I was thinking when I was on my way over here, I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. Okay. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I don't even want you guys to say nothing. When I watched Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy when we're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, have been through in America. And I feel like as a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform, when we do something wrong or, or something that people don't agree with, it's on every single tabloid, every single news coverage. It's on the bottom ticker. It's asked about every single day. But it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago, and we all make mistakes. I get it. But it seemed like it's just been buried under like, oh, it happened. Okay, we just, we just move on. And I was just kind of disappointed that I haven't received that question from you guys. 
So, just to recap what he said from the audio, he said, I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo, but when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. And when I watch Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy when we're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, haven't been, have been through in America. And I feel like as a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power in a platform, when we do something wrong or something that people don't agree with, it's on every single tabloid, every single news coverage, it's on the bottom ticker, it's asked about every single day. But it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago and we all make mistakes, I get it, but it seems like it has just been buried under like, oh, it happened, okay, we just move on. And I was just kind of disappointed that I haven't received that question from you guys. Well, all right. Um, I guess one of the reasons why I think that no one had asked LeBron that question, and maybe it leads to the argument that uh, my community has, or some folks in my community have, in terms of, I, I don't know exactly what you're supposed to say about that photo. In terms of, okay, that happened 60, except to say, okay, that happened 60 years ago. Maybe I'd like to hear what Jerry Jones has to say about that. Um, but other than that, I don't know exactly what is supposed to be said. What I mean, what was supposed to be the response to something like that? Is LeBron supposed to come out and say, see, I told you Jerry Jones is a racist. Take a look at that picture. Is he supposed to say, uh, well, you know, it was a long time ago. And uh, from the little that I know of Jerry Jones, he doesn't seem to be that person now that he was then and I don't know exactly what that was Jerry Jones were talking about football now, now maybe it might be a little bit disappointing if Dak Prescott wasn't asked that question or C.D. Lamb wasn't asked that question or Micah Parsons wasn't asked that question or because it is NFL related I would be kind of uh disappointed or I'm kind of disappointed why um that wasn't circulated that uh, discussion wasn't circulated more amongst the NFL players and owners and general managers and coaches throughout the league in terms of that photo. And I'm not trying to bring up a firestorm. This is not turning a, 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 a molehill into a mountain or anything like that. But uh, I'm just curious for LeBron, I would say, how much energy was directed toward where the owner and we're speaking about the NFL, why that has not, why that hasn't been more of a situation of asking players in that league. Why hasn't anybody asked Tom Brady? Why hasn't anybody asked Aaron Darnold? Why hasn't anybody asked uh, Patrick Mahomes? Why hasn't anybody asked uh, Josh Allen? Of, of all people, Josh Allen, if you remember the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, he was uh, taking the task years ago when he first came into the league because he has some nigger this and nigger that written on his uh, Instagram when he was 14 or 15 or 16 years old. And he had to come out and apologize saying, hey, look, man, I was just a teenager at that time living in uh, Bumfuck, California, no Wordsville, California. So I was kind of naive. I was kind of ignorant. Uh, not kind of. I was at that time. But luckily, I've grown and I'm not that person anymore. I mean, it should be easy for Jerry Jones to say, hey, look, man, when I was 14 years old, hey, man, I was still growing, I was still learning, and then the culture and the climate and the environment and the community that I was in 
I mean, hey, man, you know, that that's the reason why Martin Luther King, that's the reason why Medgar Edwards, that's the reason why the civil rights workers, that's the reason why Joe Lewis, that's the reason why Jackie Robinson, that's the reason why the greatest of them all, Malcolm X, that's why they're regarded as greatness, because they saw above the ignorance and the stupidity and the uh, warts of what this country was all about when it came to race relations and gave their lives and gave their uh, sweat and their blood and their tears to uh, change things. At the time, Jerry Jones was 14 years old. You think Jerry Jones at that time is going to be, uh, you know, the white Martin Luther King of, uh, of uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, do some things? Nah, man. I mean, he was just a kid back then. So it would be easy for Jerry Jones to say, hey, look, man, I was 14 years old. Yeah, I was curious, but I was 14 years old. But you take a look at my record now. You take a look at um, some of my relationships that I have uh, with uh, African-American players, people, this, that, and the other. Ask any black person who knows me. I think they might call me a lot of things, but being a racist, I don't think that was, uh, I don't think that's any of it. So with LeBron, a little hubris there and saying, why hasn't anybody asked me about Jerry Jones? We don't know that you even had a relationship with Jerry Jones. I'm quite sure if Jerry Jones was the owner of an NBA team, then yeah, I'm quite sure you would have received some type of a question regarding uh, that. But again, not only is he uh, an owner for another sports league, it's a situation where what exactly do we want to bring up? What exactly can we bring up as far as a discussion is concerned uh, with that matter? I don't, again, I, I, don't, I don't know if Jerry Jones is racist. Compared, you know, what, what my definition of being a racist is, I don't think he is. Do I think he's prejudiced? Yeah, I think he has some prejudice in him. Do I think that he's a bigot? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know Jerry Jones. If I don't know somebody, unless they really give me some really great evidence to show what they are, then, um, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, characterize the guy. So, I mean, you know, Herschel Walker, that clown's a coon. He's a jigaboo. He's a sorry son of a bitch. He's a house Negro. Wow. Because he, I've never met Herschel Walker, but guess what? Um, he has given us enough information about himself for me to gain enough information to formulate a opinion of what I think he is. So there you go. <laughs> based on who he is, based on what he showed us in the camera, the guy's a son of a bitch. The guy's a coon. The guy is the, uh, he, he's a, he's a jigaboo. You know, that's what he is. He's the jigaboo who played for Georgia. So, you know, it's a situation where I'm not trying to pick and choose. I'm just saying based on information that has been given to me, based on what I've seen of Jerry Jones, do I think that he's a flat-out racist? No. But um, do I think that he has some prejudice qualities? Yes. But again, when you're worth $11 billion, hey, man, and you're 80 years old, hey, man, you know, what the hell? Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So this whole deal with the Jerry Jones situation and how it equates to uh, Kyrie Irving. And Kyrie Irving, if you don't know, was the uh, point guard for the uh, Brooklyn Nets who got himself into trouble when he retweeted retweeted, uh, some nonsense from a a movie that centered on anti-Semitic tropes and Holocaust denial. Look, man, here's here's the difference. Black folks are losing their mind over this. Oh, Kyrie. Oh, poor Kyrie. We got stand up Kyrie. Kyrie, yeah. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. All of this stuff was of Kyrie's making. All of this bullshit. All of this stuff. Oh, man. Kyrie being treated like a slave. You see that what he had to do? They got to control the black man by telling him he needs to do these things. Look, man. Kyrie 
Kyrie dug his own grave on that one. Look, man, when you insult another community, I'm not going to question whether they're right or not. Because Lord knows I get sick and tired every time somebody who's white says something stupid or something racist and we call them out on it and they sit there and they go, huh, what, what, what are you talking about, huh, what, what? And then white folks try to tell us what is and what isn't racist. And when white folks try to tell us, well, this is what you guys should be upset about when it comes to race or when it comes to, this is what you should be offended by and this is what you shouldn't be offended by, that fucking drives me goddamn nuts. Because it's like, who the fuck are you to tell me as a black man or as a black person, who the fuck are you to tell me what is and what isn't racist? Who are you to tell me what I should be offended and not offended by? Who the fuck are you to be, ta- to be saying that? So when white people try to do that bullshit and it's called white privilege, when white folks try to do that type of bullshit and try to educate us on what we should or shouldn't be uh, offended by when it comes to race and racism, that fucking shit drives me up the wall. But then again, I can't be angry and upset when white folks or other people in other communities try to tell me what is and what shouldn't be offensive and all that type of stuff. I can't then turn around and do the same thing to other communities. So I can't get indignant and upset and angry at other folks when they say, yeah, you know, to you, what I said or what I did might have been considered racist to you and your community. But let me explain to you why it's not. I can't get upset and angry about that and then turn around and say, yeah, look, Jewish community, yeah, I know you're offended by what Kyrie did or or retweeted, but let me explain to you why you shouldn't be. Motherfucker, who the fuck are you? Are you fucking Jewish? Have you walked a mile in our shoes? Have you done any of that bullshit? And you're going to try to tell me what our community should and shouldn't be offended by? This is coming from a black man who has to be taking that shit from America every single day? Fuck you! And I can see where the Jewish community was like, hey man, you know, you offended us by what we did. And for black people to sit there and say, well, what did he do? He didn't do anything wrong. What are you talking about? This, that, When black folks in our community, when some black folks in our community then turned around and did the same thing to the Jewish community that the white community had been doing to us every time that they do something stupid concerning a racist concern, then it's like, come on, man, we, we can't have our cake and eat it too. You know, we, we, we can't be the ones who are going to be sitting there calling that shit out and, do, and then doing the same things. We do it with the Asian community. We do that with the Hispanic community. We are quick to sit there and judge and do the same thing that we get upset about when white people do that to our community. So we can't go ahead and sit there and defend Kyrie if what he did offended the Jewish community or offended the majority of those in the Jewish community. All Kyrie Irving had to do, all that man had to do was say, hey, look, you know what? When he was first asked the question, hey, you know what? I I made a mistake. There was a part of that movie that uh, I watched where I thought, uh, you know, it would have been good for black folks to hear. Here's what it was. But you know what? For me to learn that lesson from such an abhorrent and racist movie, um, I was wrong about that. So, so I apologize. That's all he had to say. I'm not anti-Semitic. It was just a situation where I was watching that movie. I had, I disagreed with most of it, but there was one part of that movie that I saw that kind of resonated with me. This is what it is. I should have uh, gone to a better source to uh, bring up a better uh, example 
of uh, what I was trying to get across to my community, and I apologize. My bad. I'm not an assassin medic. I just made a mistake. We're moving on. If Kyrie would have done that, if Kyrie would have done that, then it would have been cool. Everything would have been fine. We would have moved on, and this story would have died on the vine right there. But no. Kyrie pulled the same playbook that white folks and other folks use when they say something racist or they say something stupidly racist, they get called out for it, and what do they do? Instead of saying, hey, look, man, my bad. You shouldn't have done it. Should have, I made a mistake. Sorry about that. At the very least, the, the, the old, if I offended somebody, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. When white folks get caught saying something stupid, what do they say or saying something racist? Some folks like the last motherfucker with the president in name only, what do they do? They double down. They don't admit. They don't show weakness by saying, I'm sorry, I apologize. They just double down. And that's what Kyrie Irving did. Instead of Kyrie saying, hey, you know what? My bad. If I offended you, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. There was just one point of the uh, movie that I saw that really hit home with me in terms of uh, my community. Um, And this is what it was. I shouldn't have uh, watched that movie. I should have found a better situation or I should have found a better example my bad so we're moving on that's all he had to say it would have taken less than 20-25 seconds maybe a reporter would have asked a follow up question where his answer would have been similar to the first time he said something about the or the first time that he apologized and then you move on then you move on and then that would have been the end of the story but no 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 not Kyrie Kyrie had to show how strong of a black man that he is. That you know what? He's going to show his Malcolm X. He's going to show his Martin Luther King. He's going to show his Jackie Robinson. He's going to show his Sugar Ray Robinson. He's going to show his Muhammad Ali. He's going to show his strong blackness. He's going to show his Bill Russell that he ain't going to back down. He will not be bullied. He will not be uh, uh, shut down. You know, the revolution has begun and Kyrie will not acquiesce. Kyrie will not show weakness. Kyrie will not back down. So when he failed, failed to apologize and do the right thing, which then upset the Jewish community more, just like every time when white folks say something racist and they double down on their stupidity and their racism, that is upsets the black community more. Kyrie did the same thing with the Jewish community while black folks, just like white folks, are sitting up there behind them talking about, well, what did he say? What did he do? What are Jewish people getting all upset for? What are they getting bent out of shape for? I don't understand. You know, Jewish people are this, that, and the other, and they start doing the same bullshit that white people do when uh, it comes to us, comes to the uh, black community. Kyrie, instead of apologizing, said this shit. Are you sorry for the hurt that your post I take my responsibility for posting that. Some things that were questionable in there, untrue. Like I said, in the first time you guys asked me when I was sitting on that stage, I don't believe everything that everybody posts. It's a documentary. So I take my responsibility. It seems like Adam Silver wanted to hear the word, I apologize, or in your mind, you said I didn't mean to cause any harm. Were you apologizing or did you not apologize? I didn't mean to cause any harm. I'm not the one that made the documentary. What, what are the specific things in the documentary that you don't believe are true and that you don't believe I think uh, some of the criticism of the Jewish faith in the community, for sure. Some points made in there that were uh, unfortunate. Kyrie, are you surprised 
that you did hurt people? Uh, surprised that I did hurt people? Are you surprised that reaction and some of the things that you did hurt people? Yeah, I, I think I can ask a better question. It's just, where were you when I was uh, a kid figuring out that uh, 300 million of my ancestors are buried in America? Where were you guys asking those same questions when I was a kid dealing with learning about the traumatic events of my familial history and what I'm proud to come from and why I'm proud to stand here and why when I repeat myself that I'm not gonna stand down, it has nothing to do with dismissing any other race or group of people. I'm just proud of my heritage and what we've been through. And uh, the fact that this has pinned me against the Jewish community. And uh, I'm here answering questions of whether or not I'm sorry or not on something I didn't create. And it was something I shared. And I'm telling everybody I'm taking responsibility. Then that's where I sit. So, you know, these same questions that you guys ask, me dealing with it as being a melanated pigmented person all around the world and dealing with racial biases against my skin color, demeaning me because of my religious beliefs. And I'm still sitting in the seat standing. So uh, I take my full responsibility. Again, I'll repeat it for posting something on my Instagram or Twitter that may have had some unfortunate falsehoods in it. But I also am a human being that's 30 years old and I've been growing up in a country that's told me that I wasn't worth anything and I came from a slave class. And I come from a people that are meant to be treated the way we get treated every day. When asked if he was sorry for the for the post that uh, that he posted that, that hurt that caused or hurt those in the Jewish community, he said he took some he took responsibility for posting what he posted, said some of the things were untrue and he didn't believe everything in the documentary. Okay. But when he was asked if if, you know, Adam Silver asked to asked uh, asked him to apologize and he didn't he comes up with this flippant answer of well you know I didn't mean to hurt anybody but I'm not the one who made the documentary I mean what kind of fucking bullshit is that man Kyrie seriously what kind of bullshit is that what kind of bullshit is that? I didn't make the documentary I don't know what everyone's getting upset about me for it would be like someone saying hey you know um, hey you know Gone with the Wind you know the way they treated uh, Hattie McClay's uh, character yeah, this, that, and the other, but I mean, I don't know why people are making, making, getting on me for talking, for making fun of her. I didn't write, I didn't write the movie. You know, ask if he was surprised if he hurt people uh, by what he retweeted. Then he started with the, uh, you know, well, let me ask you a question. Where were you, where were you when I was a kid figuring out the 300 million of my ancestors are buried in? All right, man. All right. Enough. Please. Please. The Native American should have came up to him and been like, hey, man, where where were you when Andrew Jackson decided to massacre and massacrate our um, community and uh, take our land? Well, where were you then? Where, where, are, where are you now as far as Native Americans are concerned where we're being treated like shit? We are completely invisible. Not one person, not zero, nobody has come to our rescue, has come to our help, who have brought light upon the problems that we have in our community. Man, what the fuck are you talking about? Where were you? Where were you? And then someone who's gay should go up to Kyrie and say, where, where were you when we were being massacred, when we were being uh, discriminated? Where were you? Now, yes, out of all those examples that I used, maybe with the exception of the Native Americans, because they were here first, the fact that, man, you know, what has, what has happened to our community in this country is atrocious 
and the worst of the worst. But, you know, Kyrie starts talking about, the, you know, where were you guys asking the same question when I was a kid learning about the tragic events of my history and what I'm proud to come from? Come on, man. Come on, Kyrie. Don't be, don't be talking that bullshit. Don't be talking that bullshit. And it's bullshit. Bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. You knew that all you had to do was to man up. You want to show strength? You want to show moral fiber? You want to show real character? You want to show strong blackness? You want to show some strong uh, intelligence from a black man? You do what you should have done. If I offended the Jewish community, I am sincerely sorry. This is the reason why I retweeted what was retweeted. This is what I meant. This, that, and the other. So guess what? The Brooklyn Nets said, no, 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 fuck you. We're going to go ahead. We're going to put you on ice for a little bit until you fucking get some learning. Because we can't come out here and have you represent the Brooklyn Nets and have you sounded ignorant. And it would be the same thing if a white man came out with the same type of stupidity toward black folks and uh, or saying something racist and the Brooklyn Nets community said, no, 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 man. We can't have you coming out here sounding stupid. So there's some things that you need to do before you get back on the court to be playing basketball with us. Good for the fucking NBA. Good for the fucking Brooklyn Nets. Good for fucking everybody else. And if black people can't figure that out, and black people can't find that out, well then, you know, hey man, I don't know what to tell you. Have no idea what to tell you on that one. Because again, if the roles were reversed, with me leading the shouting and the screaming, we'd be shouting and screaming about something needs to be done. And boy, would our chili be heated if the... If, if, if my brothers and sisters of a different pigmentation across the tracks were sitting there telling me, oh, Wendell, come on, it's not that bad, this, that, and the other, don't get so, uh, oh, don't get so uh, sensitive, this, that, and the other. So, you know, there you go. So that's my whole take on the Jerry Jones and the Kyrie Irving situation. I know I went a little bit, but uh, I just wanted to get that out there, man, and, and bring those two to the light because should have been talked about a little bit sooner, but doggone it, I talked about it. Now I'm not going to be speaking just a little bit on Coach Prime. Coach Prime, not Coach Dion, but Coach Prime here on Wendell's World in Sports. Let me, uh, let me get a little holiday music going on here. Who do I got? Oh, do I got a little Stevie? Do I got a little Sunday at Christmas? S-T-E-V-I-E, Stevie Wonder. Learn, learn. The genius Stevie Wonder, Wendell's World is Sports. Someday at Christmas, men won't be boys Playing with bombs like kids play with toys One warm December, our hearts will see A world where men are free Someday at Christmas There'll be no wars When we have learned What Christmas is for When we have found What life's really worth There'll be peace on earth Someday all our dreams Will come to me Someday in a world What men are free from now till the um, end of 2022, when I do my podcasts, both my audio podcast and my video podcast on my YouTube channel. God, I hope I can get to the, I hope I can find some time to do them. I really want to. But um, on my audio 
the the uh, breaker music, the boogie music is all going to be about uh, Christmas, right? Right, holiday season, Christmas season, right around the corner. Um, so you know, I'm going to play a little, going to play a little Christmas music. Uh, Wendell's world is sports style style. So someday at yeah, Christmas, the greatest of them all, Stevie Wonder, one of the greatest of them all. So just a hint, you know I got to be playing the greatest of them all, Otis Redding, O-T-I-S-R-E-D-D-I-N-G. Look them up, kids, and learn something. You know I got to be talking about Santa Claus going straight to the ghetto by the godfather of soul, James Brown, because, you know, when I play that, I feel good. And, of course, the greatest, I'm going to end my podcast with the greatest Christmas song of them all, the true genius, Donny Hathaway, this Christmas, the greatest Christmas song of them all. So uh, stick around and uh, listen for that good stuff. I will be playing those for the rest of the year when it comes to my bumper music. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us. Let me go ahead and devote some time to the new head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes. Deion Sanders, Coach Prime. I'm conflicted about this. I really am. Um, on one hand, you know, hey, look, he did a fabulous job. I was listening to uh, uh, the sports animal, Eric G. and Coach Jones. Uh, Pat Jones, who was the uh, one of the winningest coach at the University of uh, Oklahoma State as a football coach, he coached with the uh, he coached with Jimmy Johnson with the Miami Dolphins. He was coaching uh, Barry Sanders when he won the Heisman Trophy. So, I mean, the man knows what he's talking about. He has a lot of insights and has a lot of connections within the uh, college football community, and. He was on the air with uh, my main man, Eric G. You can listen to their show, uh, 11 to 2, on Sports Talk uh, Radio out there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Sports Animal, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, from 11 to 2 Central Standard Time. And he was talking about, hey, man, you know, he was asking around. Coach was asking around about Dion in terms of uh, being a head coach because before he got the job at Jackson State, he did interview for other coaching positions. And those with the knowledge and those in the know say, hey man, when it comes to uh, Deion Sanders, as far as the coach is concerned and how serious he takes that job, he's all in. I mean, I know when the cameras are on, you know, he goes coach prime and prime time and all this kind of stuff. But as far as being uh, prepared, as far as the intelligence, uh, Dion as a football coach is right there. He is highly qualified to be a head coach. So this this is not a situation where he's just doing this for show or that he's not able. This isn't Jeff Saturday coaching the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, Deion Sanders knows this job in terms of what it takes to be a head coach, his command, his leadership. That makes him an excellent candidate to be a college football head coach. So this is just not a showing game and, and reality type of deal that uh, Dion is, is doing with this. So with that being said, he got the job at Jackson State at HBCU school a few years ago. Um, he uh, led the uh, Tigers to an undefeated season in the conference for the second consecutive season in their last 25 games. They're 23-2. and two. He had a major victory as far as the recruiting trail is concerned when he convinced Travis Henry to decommit from Florida State or he decommitted from Florida State then Dion pounced on uh, that opportunity and lured or convinced or uh, brought Travis 
Henry to Jacksonville State at HBCU school. Henry, I believe, was a top five recruit, five star, one of the best in the uh, country in his high school class. And, uh, you know, turned a lot of heads because, again, he didn't go to Florida State. He didn't go to Georgia. He didn't go to Alabama. He didn't go to Ohio State or Clemson. He went to HBCU Jackson State. So Dion basically, you know, did built a HBCU power, brought a lot of kids in from um, uh, Power 5 schools uh, looking to transfer, transferred to Jackson State and uh, had his son Shakur Steve, uh, Sanders be the quarterback of the team. And they built a pretty good uh, power down there at the HBCU level. So now he's going to take his talents to Colorado. In fact, when he was at Jackson State, Dion had only one victory by a margin of fewer than 10 points uh, this season. So he's taking his talents to Boulder. A person with knowledge of the Sanders contract told the Associated Press that it's worth over $30 million, $29.5 million plus incentives over five years, beginning at $5.5 million per year. The yearly incentives include $150,000 for six wins, $100,000 for each win after six, $150,000 for a bowl berth, and $200,000 for a New Year Six bowl invitation. And prior to this year, the most Colorado had ever paid a coach was $3.6 million. Carl Durrell, who was also a black man, who was one of the few black men who actually had a second chance to be coaching at the collegiate level, if you remember. Back in the day, he was also the coach for a little bit at UCLA. So Sanders had interviewed for Power 5 jobs the last uh, few years at TCU and Arkansas. So you know the state of minority hiring in college football. And yeah, on the one hand, I'm glad that Dion is getting this opportunity because number one, he's qualified. Insiders who know what they're talking about say that Dion is, is qualified for the job to become a head coach. But man, he's taking over a Colorado program that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's real bad. Since 2011, Colorado has finished in either last or 11th place in the Pac-12 10 times. Colorado went 1-11 this season, lost 10 games by at least 23 points, and the Buffaloes have not had a player returning to the team who made first or second team all-conference. I guess you could say they're the Georgetown Hoyas of college football. They're bad, they're bad, they're bad, they're real bad. CBS Sports' Dennis Dobb, in fact, wrote, CU has degraded to the point that a case could be made. It has the worst Power 5 program in the country. Yeah, sounds like the Georgetown Hoyas of basketball to me. There are no alignment with the administration. Resources were lacking, and there was no vision. So the question is now, with Dion coming in, Coach Prime, how quickly can he turn around the program? And exactly what does that mean when you say turning around a program? What's your definition? Let me hear your definition of turning around a program. I guess for most of it being winning a championship. Well, you're not going to be winning a championship at Colorado. You're not going to be winning a championship at Mississippi State. You're not going to be winning a championship at Stanford. You're not going to be winning a championship at Georgia Tech. You're not going to be winning a championship at Vanderbilt. You're not going to be winning a championship at Indiana. Those schools will not be winning championships. Alabama wins championships. Georgia wins championships. Ohio State competes for championships. 
Clemson wins championships. LSU competes for championships. Those are the expectations for those schools. You take a look at their recruiting budget. You take a look at their facilities. Yes, they are expected to compete for championships. You compare that to Colorado or some of the other schools that I just mentioned, it would be foolhardy to think that Colorado or any of the schools that I just mentioned, regardless of who they bring in as their coach, could pull that off and make Colorado the team that they were back in the Bill McCarthy days in the nineteen in the late nineteen eighties or early nineteen nineties. It's not going to happen. So the expectation for Dion in terms of quote unquote turning the program around, what does that mean? Now, when you're one in eleven, when you're one of the worst programs in college football, uh, there's nowhere to go but up. But then again, I said that about Georgetown last year when they went 6-21 and or 6-25 and and no one 19. I said, hell, you can go only where, you can go only, the only place you can go is up. And this year's team has proven me wrong. He goes, no, we can become even more of an embarrassment. We can become even more ludicrous. We can become more of a train wreck, a car wreck, or any type of wreck you want to talk about. I digress. So with Colorado, as bad as they were this year with Dion. He's going to bring in an influx of new players. I'm quite sure that half the roster, more than half the roster, is going to be turned over in the next couple of years because Colorado doesn't have any type of talent whatsoever. So what are we talking about when we discuss or your definition of Deion Sanders turning the program around? Are we speaking about next year he's going to win three games, four games? Are they going to be competitive in most of the games? The blowouts, if they play 12 games, that they'll only be blown out in half of their games? What are we talking about here? Are we are we looking for the short-term answer to this question? Are we talking about long-term? So how long is it going to take Dion to turn around the program? Because again, give me your definition of turning around the program. Are we talking about in five years from now, Dion's going to be competing with the best of the best for championships and New Year Bowl invitations? Are we going to be speaking about in five years without UCLA or USC because they'll be in the Pac-10, if, or she'll be in the Big Ten if the Pac-12 is still around, that Colorado will be challenging Utah and, um, and those type of schools for championships and Oregon for championships? Are we looking at Dion being consistently a 7-5 and five team, 8-4 and four team? If his best season after five years is 8-4 and four, or maybe 5-7, and seven, would you consider that a turnaround? What type of progress are you speaking about when you're speaking about Sanders taking over the squad in Colorado and moving it forward? What the progression do you want to see? Does that equate to how many wins? Does that equate to effort? Does that equate to talent? Does that equate to the university's uh, dedication and mission to make it a better football program? I know it's all of those, but how much do you equate? How much of a percentage do you put into the success of Dion being the coach of Colorado for, let's say, the first three years of his tenure? What are we speaking about? How much emphasis are you putting on the definition of success in how many wins? The recruiting getting better. Better facilities. Conference victories. Playing hard. Margin of victories. Competence. What are we looking for? What's your definition? For me, it's a situation where I hope Dion does well. I really do. In the dearth of, of uh, 
coaching of uh, black head coaches or minority coaches in college football, man, I'm, I'm hoping that he does do something. I hope that uh, he will be on the same level as Oregon or Utah. I hope that uh, in a short amount of time that he can be better than the worst of the worst in the Pac-12, like a Stanford, like a Carol, like a uh, California, like a like the two Arizona schools. I hope that they're able to compete with the likes of Washington State and Oregon State and Washington in a couple of years, and then I hope eventually they will be able to compete with the Oregon's and the Utahs of the world. But you know. How how successful can he be short-term, long-term, micro and macro? Is he ever going to get to the place where he's going to be able to compete with the West Coast programs, not just as far as victories are concerned or, or uh, relevance is concerned, but just as far as recruits are concerned, which is the foundation for your success as a football program or a basketball program or any type of program? How successful is he going to be against West Coast football programs like USC and UCLA and Washington and Oregon. How will he do in recruiting against elite programs like Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Notre Dame, Michigan? The schools or the programs that he's going to be shooting for in terms of bringing Colorado to that relevance. Again, can it be done? What type of talent can he recruit immediately from the transfer portal? He can't bring everybody. I know Travis Henry was talking about, I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to go, coach. I'm here for you. I understand that. But but then again, I mean, you know, I get, he was recruiting down in terms of the HBCU schools, which the SWAC conference is one of the worst conferences in college football. Hey, man, I ain't being a sellout. I'm just telling the truth. The SWAC and the MEAC, we know about them uh, historically black colleges and universities in terms of the basketball and football programs, not that strong. So at Jackson State, Dion was given the opportunity to bring in talent from other schools, the Power 5 schools that normally would not go to an HBCU school, but because he was Dion, they were gravitated toward Jackson, Mississippi and played for Jackson State. And because of that, for the most part, Jackson State won a lot of their games just based on talent alone. So in the world of HBCUs and football programs, Jackson State became the Alabama. They became the Ohio State. They became the uh, uh, Michigan. They became the Clemson. They became one of the powerhouses of the uh, of that region, of that, of that uh, community, and one based a lot on just talent alone. He's not going to have that. He's not going to have that advantage at Colorado. I mean, he's not going to be getting guys that that are going to be deciding between going to Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama, USC, and Clemson. He, he's not, or Notre Dame. He, he ain't going to get those kids. He might get some of those kids from the transfer portal, but it's not going to be enough to immediately challenge uh, even the mediocre teams. So, so how long are we going to be dealing with this? How long are we going to be speaking about this? So again, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted because the black man gets a chance to become a, a head coach. But man, at Colorado, I mean, is he setting himself up for failure? So that's really what I'm conflicted about. Yes, I think it's a great thing when a qualified black head coach receives the opportunity be, to become a head football coach in the Power Five conferences. Now, the Power Five conferences include the SEC, the Pac-12, the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12. You know, in the current hiring cycle, there's been seven Power Five programs that's had openings for a head coach. You have Auburn, you have Colorado, Stanford, Georgia Tech, 
Wisconsin, Arizona State, Nebraska, right? Six of those have been filled entering Sunday afternoon with Stanford still open. Of those six, only Dion was the non-white man that was hired. I mean, Auburn, for God's sakes, hired Hugh Freeze from Liberty. Do you remember Hugh Freeze? What he was doing when he had a, what was he coaching at, Mississippi? And he brought in the number one recruiting class, Robert and Dishay and all these guys and Everybody was looking around, talking about, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is a recruiting class that that we can understand if Texas or Alabama or Ohio State or one of those schools, yeah, the the recruits that this guy was getting, yeah, we can understand if Alabama was doing that, but Mississippi? Mississippi? Hold on, man, there's something going on. Oh, yeah, there was something going on. He was cheating his ass off. And then we're speaking about, uh, you know, Hugh Freeze as far as his personal conduct is concerned when, you know, you're speaking about his action toward minors, privately messaging a woman who accused his players at liberty of sexual assault, lying to recruits and their families while trying to pin much of his wrongdoings on a predecessor. Come on, man. He gets another job. He gets another bite at the apple in the SEC while the SEC has had, what, four or five black head coaches in the history of the program? Sylvester Croom became the first black head coach uh, back in the day for Mississippi State. Then what you've had, Kevin Summerlin, um, the, the, the guy for uh, Kentucky, uh, man, the name I forgot, and a couple of others. I mean, come on, man. This year, 17 of the 131 FBC schools had head coaching, op- had, had head football coach openings. Of the 10 that have been filled so far, Sanders is the only non-white male to be hired. Last season, of the 29 FBCs, FBS schools that brought in new head coaches, just six were black or other uh, or other men of color. Come on, man. Come on, man. So, yeah, on one hand, it's like I'm glad that Dion got the job. I'm glad that Dion got the job at Colorado. But, man, I wish he would have stayed at Jackson State. I wish he would have stayed at Jackson State. I mean, he was building something really special down there at Jackson State. And and look, man, the stuff that he was doing, how long was it going to resonate? How far would the impact have gone? Because he did a lot for Jackson State, and he did some for the HBCUs. But when you take a look and see how much um, how much it, it it helped Jackson State compared to what his impact was over the SWAC conference and also the other the the, the MEAC, the other conference where it has historically black colleges and university, very minimal. So you're sitting here and just taking a look and you say, did, did Dion use Jackson State to get where he wanted to go? That all this nonsense about I have a calling and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, your calling wasn't about helping out black kids and doing all this kind of stuff. Your calling was trying to get a better head coaching position. And you used Jackson State to do it. So all this talk about, yeah, I'm down, brother, this, that, and the other, man, you're full of shit. Because you weren't really down with the HBCU uh, experience. You were all about trying to do what you could to get the hell out of there and do it as quickly as possible. Now, in doing so, you did help the program. You did help the university. You did help the community immensely. And you should be applauded and, and, um, and um, you know, receive the applause for that. But it's just a situation where it's like, man, how, how long is it going to take for the impact 
of what Dion did for Jackson State to, to wear off, to where it becomes just Jackson State again. And they're going to be no different than Grambling or Prairie View or Florida A&M or, or, or any of those other schools. I mean, they're going to fall back into the same plight as North Carolina A&T and Howard and FAMU and Morgan State. And it's just going to be a situation where it's like, hey, man, Dion is doing the thing up in uh, big timeville. And um, everything that he built at Jackson State and trying to resonate and trying to grow and trying to uh, prosper and trying to foster in other HBCU schools it means nothing. His impact will mean nothing in a couple of years. So I just wish that somehow, some way, he could have had the same impact on HBCUs as Urban Meyer had when he went to Ohio State and what he did for the Big Ten Conference or what Lincoln Riley did when he went to USC and what he did for the Pac-12. I wish Dion could have stuck around and elevated the HBCU school that could have elevated the uh, SWAC, uh, the, the SWAC that conference. And I'm not saying that they would have been a power, not saying that they would have been, you know, leading the charge in terms of recruits and everything like that is concerned. But man, those schools, those schools down there, man, they need it, man. They need the Deion Flan- Sanders touch. They need the Deion Sanders residue of what he was doing at uh, Jackson State. And now that's gone. Now game day ain't going to go down there. Now, Good Morning America is not going to go down there. Now, all that attention to those HBCU schools is not going to be what it was. And uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. So, yes, on the one hand, I'm glad that Dion took the job. But on the other hand, it's like, man, opportunity lost. And I don't know, man. Were we really expecting to see Dion be the coach of uh, Jackson State for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, of course not. Eventually, if he had the type of success that he was having, that he was going to move on. But um, it was just a shame. It was just a shame. It was fun while it lasted, right? I guess it was that female. You date a female, and you think that, uh, you know, that female loves you, but all she's trying to do is to uh, impress the guy that she broke up with or to impress the guy that broke up with her to uh, take her back in the minute that he says, come on back, I want you back, like Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5, that he's going, that she's going to leave your arms and run to his arms. Just once, can we figure out what we keep doing wrong? Why the good times never last so long? What are we doing wrong? Last American version, look it up, kids. So, version, okay, whatever. So, yeah, man, so, um, yeah. It was good while it lasted at Jackson State, but Dion has moved on. I hope he does well. But uh, like I said, my thoughts and feelings about it, the word that comes to mind is conflicted. Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto Hitch up your reindeer uh, Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Fill every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a doll for Mary 
Leave something pretty for Donnie And don't forget about Gary Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Go straight to Wendell's World of Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Tell them to listen to Wendell's World in Sports Because I speak about sports in all kind of courts Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto James Brown The Godfather of Soul Look him up kids Look him up Look at the uh, night Look Go to YouTube The night that James Brown Saved America In terms of the concert that he gave in Boston April 6, 1968 363 days before yours truly was born Go look up that uh, show And go watch that show And go watch the documentary behind that James Brown saved this country James Brown with that concert Saved that country And with that uh, with that act that he did Basically the, the government said We gotta look out for this guy We gotta watch this guy Because anybody who can stop a riot is also can be powerful enough to start a riot That's what happened also with Malcolm X Malcolm X uh, The night that he led is uh, the Nation of Islam down to the police station after a black man was brutally uh, beaten by the police and instead of getting medical treatment he was uh, stuck at the police station and Malcolm organized that a black man to get some medical help and as he told his followers to go back home and disperse the white police chief said that's too much power for one man to have which essentially put Malcolm X on the radar of one of the biggest pieces of shit in American history, and there's a lot of them, J. Edgar Hoover, who still has his name down in D.C. I don't fucking know why we would have that piece of shit down there in, in as far as naming a building after him, the director of the FBI, but um, that was a situation with that. For those who might live in different communities, for those who might not have the opportunity, for those who might not have uh, the situation where you can learn these type of things because of the environment and the community that you're living in, Mr. Wallace speaking to you, and you don't have to thank me, just go ahead and take advantage and learn something, if you would please. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. That's all over the world, that's all over the world that I'm speaking about. Knowledge is king, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad. Hey, man, teaching and preaching. You know, that's what I'm talking about. I'm like Raphael Warnock. I'm teaching while I'm preaching, baby. Wendell's World in Sports for the third time. Wendell's World the third. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, let's talk about the NFL. Week 13 is in the books. Taking a look at the playoff picture in both conferences, the AFC, Buffalo is the number one seed. Remember when Buffalo, after losing two games in a row, they were ranked seventh at the time. Now, they were tied with a couple of folks, but how quickly a difference a couple of weeks makes. They go from seventh all the way to first. So they have the number one seed in the AFC with a 9-3 record tied with Kansas City, also at 9-3, but Kansas City is number two because Buffalo beat them in a head-to-head situation this year. Baltimore coming in third. I don't know if the situation with Lamar Jackson, who is week to week, he's not going to be playing this upcoming weekend, but uh, Baltimore is third in the division or in the conference with an 8-4 and record. 
Tennessee, who's leading the AFC South, they have a 7-5 record coming off another loss, a second difficult loss uh, for the Titans after losing to Cincinnati um, last week. Who did they lose to this week? I don't have my notes in front of me, man. Who did they lose to this week? We'll look it up. But they are the fourth seed, and then you have the three wildcard spots. Cincinnati, who I think right now is playing the best football in the AFC. They're the number five seed at eight and four. Miami, coming off that loss to the San Francisco 49ers. They are eight and four. Two was first bad game in a little bit. And the New York Jets, tough loss to the Minnesota Vikings on the road. They are the seventh seed with a 7-5 record. The teams on the outside looking in in the AFC include the New England Patriots, who are 6-6, six and six, the LA Chargers, who are 6-6. Six and six. Moving to the NFC here on Wendell's World of Sports with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. And the NFC, Philadelphia, maintaining the number one spot after their impressive victory over Tennessee. Thank you, boy. Age is something else, man, when it works with the mind. Philadelphia, 35 to 10 victors. That's right. Over Tennessee. They are 11 and 1. Minnesota, 10 and 2. Second seed in the NFC. San Francisco leading the NFC West. They are 8 and 4. NFC South, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 6 and 6. Number 5 seed, and quite possibly the second best team in the NFC, and quite possibly one of the best teams in the NFL, when I'm speaking about the top three teams, the Dallas Cowboys, because they are in the NFC East. They are leading, or they are trailing the Eagles by two games for the division championship, but as far as the conference are concerned, they have the number five spot in the wild card. They are with a 9-3 record. Number six, the New York Giants, fresh off of a 20-20 tie against my Washington Commanders. They are the sixth seed at 7-4-1. And, and then the number seven seed, the Seattle Seahawks, 7-5 and five victory close against the Los Angeles Rams, who I believe signed Baker Mayfield, right? Because Baker Mayfield was released by the Carolina Panthers. So the, so the uh, LA Rams have picked him up, which probably means that Matthew Stafford, who's in concussion protocol, is going to be done for the year. But on the, the teams on the outside looking in are my Washington Commanders, having a bye this week with a 7-5-1 record, along with the Detroit Lions, 5-7. and seven. Man, didn't, we, didn't, I, didn't I ask you, huh? Didn't I ask you at the beginning of the season, which one of the teams that stunk out loud last year is going to be making that move again we see this every year almost every year in the NFL where there's a team that the year before was terrible was lousy was a laughing stock and they are making moves and they're you know setting the world on fire and they're changing their direction and that type of thing this season so far it's been the New York Giants it's been the New York Jets and lo and behold it's been the it's been the Detroit Lions who at one point was battling for one of the worst teams in the NFL with their record. But, uh, hey, man, Jared Goff has turned things around. They got uh, the, the, the kid St. Brown, who's uh, become a really good uh, wide receiver. The offensive coordinator for it, every, I was listening to some guys talk about the Detroit Lions and their schemes and their schematics and, you know, inside football, next level type of stuff. Shit I don't understand, but, you know, anytime I can pick up some knowledge, I'll listen. But um, he was talking about... Um, he was talking about um, how the offensive coordinator for Detroit, how he's doing such an awesome job. And he's done an awesome job uh, uh, coming off the 40-14 to 14 win over Jacksonville. And he was like, if I was a Detroit Lions fan, I would be really nervous 
because the way that he is running this Detroit Lions offense, that he's going to be getting some looks possibly as a head coach. Then I said to myself, well, you know, yeah, that might be true. But for Detroit Lions fans who might be worried about that, there's one caveat that might uh, that might uh, quell some of your concerns. He's black. Now, if he was a white coordinator doing this type of shit, I would be really worried too because in all likelihood, he would be the head coach somewhere. But because he's black, just ask Eric Bieniemy. they always find a way to put up a roadblock. Ask Byron Leftwich, they always find a way to put up a roadblock to where he's not experienced enough or there's some bullshit to where he doesn't get the job. So if you're a Detroit Lions fan, you might breathe a little bit easier that the offensive coordinator is black. And when it comes to hiring practices in the NFL, we know how that goes. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. Some of the storylines dominating on Sunday as I look at what's going on. Devastating losses for Baltimore and San Francisco. We don't know the extent of the injury to Lamar Jackson, but we do know the possibility that the San Francisco 49ers might have lost their quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, for the season on Sunday thanks to a broken foot. Now they are now reports are coming out like it's not a Liz Frank, so there could be a possibility that he could return. I don't know. Who knows? But this is the third time since 2018 that Garoppolo will finish a season on injured reserve. If he does, rookie Brock Purdy, Purdy ugly. Brock Purdy. There was this girl in, in uh, elementary we knew whose name was Stacy Purdy. So me and my friends used to always come up to her and say, hey, what's going on, Stacy Purdy? Purdy ugly. And the shit just stuck, right? How immature and how juvenile. But Brock Purdy replaced Garoppolo and threw his first NFL touchdown pass on his first drive um, uh, for a four-yard score. He finished the game 25-37 of 37 for 210 yards, two scores with an interception for a passing rating of 88.8. And the 49ers scored 20 points on 10 drives with Purdy in the game before kneel downs. And according to ESPN's Adam Schefter, the San Francisco signed veteran backup quarterback Josh Johnson from the Denver Broncos practice squad. Now, can the 49ers asking this question to you once again, those who are listening all across the globe, can the San Francisco 49ers, what's their, what the definition of their season now? Because we know what we're going to ask. What's going to be happening now with the San Francisco 49ers if, <clears throat> if um, Jim, Jimmy Garoppolo truly is gone for the season? What does it mean? What's going to be happening? This, that, and the other. The 49ers have tremendous talent around Brock Purdy, but come on, man, a guy who's a seventh-round pick and a rookie being able to really lead the San Francisco 49ers to a Super Bowl, not going to be happening. This was a situation where I think the 49ers came into the season to where we have a good chance and we're hoping and we're banking and we're praying on Trey Lance being that quarterback who can guide us to a Super Bowl championship because we have the pieces. We have especially the defense with DeMarco uh, Ryan leading the charge. We have a defense and we have a running game and we have a coach and we have coaches and we have an offensive line. And this was before we got Christopher McCaffrey with the running game, D.B. Samuels and, and Chris Ayuk and others, George Kittle at the tight end position. We have enough around Trey Lance for him to do well and get us to the Super Bowl. Then Trey Lance kind of stinks up the joint in preseason and breaks his uh, ankle the second game of the season. So in comes Jimmy Garoppolo. And Garoppolo, while he has a ceiling, he has done really good work with Kyle Shanahan as the coach. Game manager, whatever you want to call it, 
he did bring San Francisco, or he was part of a San Francisco 49er team that almost won a Super Bowl a few seasons ago and made it to the NFC Championship game this uh, past season. So he goes down. Now it's a situation where, look, there's nobody off the scrap heap that's going to be coming in to save them. You're, you're not going to be making a trade for anybody. The LA Rams have already signed Baker Mayfield, so that idea is out the window. This is going to be probably Brock Purdy or bust. Hoping, praying, possibly that Jimmy Garoppolo can come back, but all likelihood, this is going to be a situation where you're going to be right with Brock Purdy. Do I think that the 49ers have what it takes to hold on and make a playoff spot or to win the division in the NFC West? Yes. But, man, when you're speaking about having to put Brock Purdy in a situation where he's going to be going up against a defense like the Dallas Cowboys, going up against an offense like the Philadelphia uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, I mean, you're speaking about that, man. I don't think Brock Purdy is going to be enough to get it done, and the pieces around him I don't think are going to be able to elevate the uh, 49ers to where they want to go. Who... What, how, what might have happened with Garoppolo at the quarterback? I still think that the Eagles and the Cowboys are the two best teams in the NFC. I still don't put any faith in Kirk Cousins with the Minnesota Vikings, despite their 10-2 record so far. So it's going to come down to the quarterback play going up against a team in Dallas with a strong defense, a balanced running game now. Um, Dak Prescott hitting their stride. You saw the 33 fourth quarter point that they put on an unprepared uh, Indianapolis Colts team. Um, speaking about the Eagles, the balance that they have on offense. Um, yeah, I don't think that the 49ers have enough to, to get it done. Winning the division, yes. Winning a playoff game, yes. But running into a Dallas or a Philadelphia, I just don't think Brock Purdy has enough to be able to compete and uh, lead them to victory, which... Uh, you're going to be having, you're going to have to do if you're a quarterback in the NFL during the playoff season. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, man. I'm taking a look on uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, man. Really, the best team in the AFC. Impressive victory over the Kansas City football team. Their third victory over Kansas City, who came into the uh, game ranked number one as far as record-wise in the AFC as far as the conference is concerned. Now, look, you've got Buffalo who are hitting the stride, a very professional performance on uh, Thursday against the New England Patriots. Um, we don't know what's going to be happening with the severity of the knee injury to Lamar Jackson. But I think as of right now, man, Cincinnati has the most balanced team in the AFC when you speak about the returning of Joe Mixon soon. Cedric, uh, uh, P. Ryan has come in and done an excellent job subbing for him. Jamar Chase is now back. So, you know, you hook up Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and along with Joe Burrow, who's playing at an MVP. Level the Bengals being eight and two in their last ten games have uh, played excellent football again, beating Kansas City, albeit at home. Uh, yeah, I think the Bengals, man, there are they're for real. They are for real, and we don't know exactly what's going to be happening with the Baltimore Ravens moving forward. Now, Todd Hundley is going to be the backup quarterback for Lamar Jackson, but uh, yeah, the Bengals have themselves a very difficult um, playoff type uh, uh, the schedule that they have they're going to be playing a lot of playoff type teams so they're going to be ready and so far through the gauntlet they've already beaten two division leaders when you're speaking about the week before they beat Tennessee and then this past week 
they beat the Kansas City football team. So, hey, man, they're already in play. They're already in playoff mode. So how much is that going to be able to help them if they can stay relatively healthy down the stretch when they reach the playoff, if they reach the playoff to go against teams like the Buffalo Bills, who are in the fight of their lives also, with them being tied record-wise with the Miami Dolphins and and, and those teams are going to be colliding soon to see who's going to be the winners of the AFC East when you're speaking about uh, the uh, Kansas City football team trying to rebound from the loss that they had. It's going to be interesting uh, with those teams moving forward. Uh, in the NFC, as I mentioned before, the Philadelphia Eagles, another impressive victory. Jalen Hurts and Joe Burrow. Do we move them into the MVP uh, conversation? I'm stealing this from a podcast I heard when they were speaking about this in terms of Jalen Hurts and uh, Joe Burrow. So I just want to throw that question out to you. I still think Patrick Mahomes is the best player in football. I think Patrick Mahomes, or at least is the most valuable player in football. So I still think, as far as the MVP is concerned, I still think that he's ahead of the pack. But hey, man, the way that Joe Burrow is playing, you can't uh, take away from what Jalen Hurts has done with the Eagles. He might not have the sexy stats to uh, scream MVP, but 11 and 1 is 11 and 1. And again, we're taking a look at narrative, we're taking a look at the storylines. Who would have thought Jalen Hurts two years ago would have been in this position and have the Eagles with the record that they have right now? That's got to be thrown into into some consideration when speaking about MVP considerations. Storylines always play a role. So, yeah, NFL moving on, baby. NFL getting hot, baby. The final push, final month of the season coming up, a full month of the season is getting hot, it's getting heavy. We don't know. Outside of the Eagles and the Cowboys, who the best team is after that. We don't know which one of those teams, when you're speaking about Tampa Bay, who had a miraculous comeback on Monday Night Football uh, last uh, night against the New Orleans Saints. When you're speaking about the Minnesota Vikings again with Kirk Cousins at the quarterback, we don't know about that. When you're speaking about those those type of teams, we don't know the New York Giants, are they for real? Are my commanders going to get in there with that defense playing a lot better? We don't know. We don't know what's going to be happening. We don't know what's going to be going on. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it fun. The quarterback situation in San Francisco that I spoke about, Brock Purdy. What about the Seattle Seahawks with Geno Smith? That's what makes it fun. NFL, hot and heavy, getting it together. Now, let's end this bad boy with a little boogie, with a little something, with a little something, something, with a little Otis Redding, with a little Merry Christmas. Coming back with some college football talk very quickly. Wendell's World of Sports. Merry Christmas, baby. Should it treat me nice? The greatest of them all. 
the absolute greatest of them all. Otis Redding. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Ah, welcome back. Last segment of the program, last segment of the podcast. Tell you, man, age is a bitch. Getting old is a bitch. I have been through, in the last couple of months, since I left this Clark County School District, I've had a bum shoulder. How did I get that? I have no idea. I've had a foot that has been killing me. I have no idea. I woke up one morning with my foot in pain and can barely put any pressure on it. Now, after getting over a cold, in which, it, which knocked me out for a couple of days, now, I think I tore a muscle in my ass. Because my right buttocks cheek is killing me. So I've been sitting down recording this, and I need to stand up because, whoo, man, every time I take a step, it hurts. My ass is hurting. Young fella Omar in the, in the place that I work at, and I was talking to him, and I was talking about, you know, the aches and pains that I got. And he's like, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. Omar's 26. I'm 53. I said, young buck, let me tell you something, man. Enjoy the health. Enjoy the health, young fella, because, woo, man, growing old mentally, and my generation knows this, right? Growing old mentally, fantastic. It's fantastic that you don't have the mentality that you had in your 30s, in your 20s, in your teens to be doing the stupid shit that you did back in the day. So nice, so much better when you have that mentality that mentally you're at right now. But physically, man, it sucks. Physically, it absolutely sucks. Because the shit that I'm going through right now, and I know there's a millions of people who have it a lot worse than I do, so I'm just saying that growing old physically, and my generation knows this, sucks, 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 sucks. So I told that young fellow, hey man, enjoy every step that you can run, enjoy every hair on your head, enjoy every muscle on your body, enjoy every bone that ain't aching, enjoy the, enjoy those knees that aren't creaking, enjoy that back that ain't painful, enjoy the time getting up for bed where you're not getting out of bed going, oh yeah, enjoy, enjoy the times that you ain't waking up in the middle of the night to go use the bathroom, enjoy, 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 because guess what? Enjoy the fact that what you call fat is something to where you ain't seen nothing yet. Enjoy. Because guess what? That old age, it is a coming. The knees start creaking. It is a coming. That back start aching. It is a coming. Them joints start getting stiffer. It is a coming. That belly start protruding. It is a coming. That waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. It's a coming. It's a coming. It might be in 15 years. Might be in 20 years, might be 30 years, might be 40 years. But if you live long enough, it's a coming. And when it gets there, it ain't going nowhere. When that hairline starts receding, young fella, it ain't coming back. When that hairline starts receding, it's gone. From the top of that forehead, it is gone. When you get that bald spot, it's there to stay. It ain't coming back. Mm-mm. So enjoy that youth. Well, you got it because, boy, growing old physically, S-U-C-K-S is terrible. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Woo! I've run over a lot today. So let me quickly get to uh, college football. Just real quick, man, when you're speaking about the uh, Final Four for the playoffs, right? No big deal in terms of there's no controversy. No, I can't believe this. Nobody got screwed. No, 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 no. Alabama, shut up. Shut up, shut up. 
shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear some bullshit about, hey, well, who would have been favored if we would have uh, been in there against TCU? No, 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 Nick, you lost. You lost once, you lost twice. Now, because we have no idea, for the most part, how the teams are selected, then, you know, you can take any argument that you want to, twist and bend it, to say, well, hey, how come we're not doing this? Well, I mean, I thought the college football was about the four best teams, so aren't we one of the four best teams? This is Nick Saber's argument, right? Well, I mean, aren't we one of the four best teams? Isn't that what the playoffs are supposed to be? The choosing the four best teams? So how could you choose, uh, No, they always say this, no disrespect, but how could you choose uh, TCU or Ohio State over us? I mean, you put, you know, you put us on the field in the neutral site against those two teams. I mean, which one are you going to uh, think is going to win the game? It's not about that, Nick. We thought you were going to win the game against LSU. You were a two-touchdown favorite, and you blew it. We thought you were going to win the game against Tennessee. You were a heavy favorite, and you blew it. So, no, I don't want to hear that nonsense. I don't want to hear that bullshit. You lost once. You're one of the few teams in the country to where if you lose once, you still get another chance to get into the playoffs, and you lost again. So, hey, man, Sorry. That's the way it goes. So the four teams are Georgia, uh, Michigan, TCU, that's Texas Christian University, y'all, and uh, Ohio State. So it shapes up to be on December 31st that Georgia is going to be playing Ohio State in the Peach Bowl and TCU is going to be playing Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl. Georgia is going to be playing Ohio State in the Peach Bowl, which is basically going to be a home game for the University of Georgia. So it looks like Georgia and Michigan will be in the finals for the championship game, which will be played at SoFi Stadium out there in Inglewood, California. Oops, I mean Inglewood, California on January 9th. Stan Kroenke, make that money, make that money, make that money. So, yeah, man, not too much about this. USC uh, missed their opportunity to... Um, get into the uh, football playoffs. I know that uh, as we speak right now that uh, somewhere in uh, Oklahoma City that Eric G is still dancing around in the streets, happy that Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams will not be playing in the college football playoffs and still angry and upset about what they did leaving Oklahoma to go out to Southern California and um, play for the USC Trojans. But uh, solid year, awesome year. Um, for USC, they're playing in the Cotton Bowl against Tulane. They better not lose to Tulane or else they could take a lot of shine off of uh, what was a glorious season, turning around a USC program, Lincoln Riley, turning around a USC program that was 4-8, and eight, getting it to the uh, conference championship game, losing to Utah. I spoke about um, the, who did I, what team was I speaking about in college football to where it reminded me of when Stanford in Oregon used to play, and Oregon had this high-octane offense with these unbelievable skilled players, and every year they thought they were going to be doing something. Stanford would go up there and just with these big, beefy sons of bitches just beat the shit out of them, and that would be the uh, that would be the end of that. Michigan-Ohio State, that's right. That's who I compared it to. Same thing with uh, this season, USC and Utah. Utah doesn't have nearly the talent that USC has. 
But what it does have is the ability just to pound, to pound, to Rocky Marciano, to Rocky Balboa, to Joe Frazier, these guys, just to pound them into submittals, into submission. And whether they're hitting them in the elbows or the kidneys or the thighs or the arms or the chest or the knuckles or the wrist or the jaw, Sooner or later, them heavy blows are going to take its toll on the speedy, faster, uh, more skilled, better looking, this, that, and the other uh, squads. It's the same thing, man, when I would use that boxing analogy, the same thing with uh, um, the, the football analogy when you're speaking about Utah and USC. Even though the first game, USC was able to put 42 points on the board, it was a situation in that championship game. Uh, the Pac-12 championship game where it was like, okay, USC jumped out to that quick lead and you thought possibly this is going to be a situation where USC was going to solidify that final berth in the playoff, maybe move up more, which I think they would have done if they would have won the Pac-12 championship and with the uh, Horn Frogs of TCU losing, that would have been a situation where USC could have been the uh, number three seed and be playing Michigan in the uh, Fiesta Bowl, but Hey, man, it was a situation where Utah just kept pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding on those guys, and eventually it uh, it showed with the second-half domination that Utah had, and it didn't help USC that uh, Williams suffered a severe uh, hamstring injury. Still think that um, Williams is going to win the MVP or win the Heisman Trophy, which is the equivalent of the MVP. All right, I'm going to save some of this other stuff in terms of the transfer, transfer portal. I'll save that for uh, next week for my next uh, episode. I've been speaking long enough. I know y'all got to, got other things to do. Um, I'm quite sure you guys got to catch a flight. Quite sure you guys got to go to your next class. Quite sure you guys got to uh, do some other things. So um, I'm going to end it there. I want to thank you so much for listening. I know you guys got to get back to work. So, yeah, I'm going to end it there. want to uh, thank everybody for listening to the program. As always, as usual, as I always say, please... Do something in terms of learning from others who don't look like you, different backgrounds, different races, different religions, different political affiliations, different loving interests, different partnerships. Please do what we can. Please do what we can to make sure that we grow ourselves in terms of learning, listening, shutting up, and um, doing those type of things. Because the world needs more unity. The world needs more togetherness. The world needs all of that stuff, and we need to provide it to them. So put down the guards, open up your ears, open up your mind, open up your third eye, open up both your eyes, open up your four eyes if you're wearing glasses, and learn from somebody. Get out of your fucking comfort zone for once in your fucking lives and learn something so you can be a contributor to this community and for the younger generation who I'm speaking to get the fuck out of your comfort zone put down your cell phones put down your instagrams and fucking learn something so you can take care of my generation when we're no longer able to do it do you understand me thank you so much love all y'all Wendell Wallace Wendell's world of sports get me out of here my man Donnie Hathaway, the greatest of them all, with some music. How much fun is 
Cards are here. My world is filled with children. 